Gospel Church, it is good to be with you this morning. You may have a seat. My name is Chris Gomes, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and I'm really glad to be with you all, um, and I'm sad to say goodbye to a few. Uh, this is the time in our service where we will be saying goodbye to the kids, uh, but not for long. Um, so if you're in Blue Station, ages 3 to 5, you're going to be exiting to your right. And if you're in Gray Station, ages uh, 6th to 5th grade, you're going to be going uh, to the left. The kids in the Gray Station this morning, they're going to be asking and thinking about this question, what is the Lord's Prayer? Uh, I won't read you the answer. I, I would encourage you to uh, look to the scriptures and, and, and see how the Lord has instructed us to pray. Uh, but I will say, uh, the Lord's Prayer was the very first uh, uh, bit of Christian, I guess, literature, you could say, that I ever read before I even became a Christian. So um, it's a, it, 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 those are good words to meditate upon, and I still remember the words um, from way, way, way back in the day. Signed by President Kennedy in 1963, Executive Order 11085, I'm sure we all know this, established the Presidential Medal of Freedom. It is awarded in most instances for, and I quote, an especially meritorious contribution to the security or national interests of the United States, world peace, cultural or other significant public or private endeavors. Bestowed by the president, it is the highest civilian award in the United States. I am not right about a lot of things, but I'm fairly certain that I am right about this. I will most likely never receive the Presidential Medal of Freedom. But there are some notable recipients who have received this most distinguished award. You may know some of them. The legendary jazz pianist Duke Ellington. Mother Teresa, civil rights icon Rosa Parks, and my all-time favorite recipient on this uh, list, Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers. But long before the inception of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, great acts of service and loyalty were expected to be rewarded. They were expected to be rewarded. Last week, we began a study of the story of Esther, where we saw a great act that we expect to be rewarded. In the opening chapter of the story of Esther, we were introduced to the Persian king Ahasuerus, or you can call him Xerxes. We also were introduced to his wife, Queen Vashti. Now, by defying the king's command and publicly embarrassing him, Queen Vashti was stripped of her position by a royal decree. And then in chapter 2, the king sought a better replacement for Vashti. So then we were introduced to two more characters, Mordecai and Esther. And thanks to her stunning beauty and outperforming all the other women in the king's harem, it was Esther who was crowned as Xerxes' new queen. And it was towards the end of chapter 2, thanks to Mordecai's especially meritorious contribution to the security or national interest of the Persian Empire, the king's life was spared. But, unlike the celebration and the fanfare that chapter 1 opened with, chapter 2, we saw, concluded with surprising silence. This morning, we are going to observe two scenes, and we're going to ask two questions. So if you're a note-taker... Two scenes and two questions. So turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 3. And if you don't have a copy of the Bible, you can use the black hardcover Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. Uh, we'll be in uh, page 485 in the black pew, uh, pew Bibles. The larger numbers are the chapter numbers and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. Two scenes, two questions. We're going to turn to our first scene in Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. 
But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. This is a tense scene that we come to. There's a sense of tension and fear. There's a sense of anger and fury. Uh, the, 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 the feeling that uh, we find in this brief passage kind of sucks all the air out of the room. Now, at this point in the story, there, about five years have passed since Esther was crowned as queen. And in all this time, what we notice is Mordecai still has not been recognized for saving the king's life. This detail, although it's really subtle, this detail will be significant later on in the story. In these opening verses, we are introduced to another new character. This time, we are introduced to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Haman's introduction brings about an unexpected twist in the story. Instead of Mordecai, who deserved the recognition, it is Haman who is now rewarded. Now, we're not told why Haman was promoted and advanced, but we are told that the king commanded all of his servants to bow down and pay homage to Haman. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. In the course of three chapters, there's a really fascinating observation here. If you, if you remember uh, the first two chapters we read, in the course of three chapters, this is the second time that a direct command from King Xerxes has been disobeyed. First Vashti, and now... Surprisingly, Mordecai. Now, day after day, the king's servants, they would come to Mordecai for an explanation. And they tried to convince him to change his mind, but he would not listen to them. Now, we can all probably identify with Mordecai to some degree, can't we? When we are convinced that we are absolutely right, it is going to be a very difficult task for someone to convince us that we might be wrong. It's especially difficult when what we are convinced about is a deeply held conviction. Something that not only is an opinion, but something that shapes the way we view the world. A, 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 a conviction as it appears that Mordecai held in this scene. He refused to listen to them. He refused to bow down. He continued to transgress the king's command. But there's something about Mordecai that we need to understand. He, as an official in Xerxes' empire, Mordecai had to know what the cost was for disobeying the king's command. He can't plead ignorance. He's an official in the empire. He has inside knowledge. He is aware of how the empire operates. He knows just how the gears in the machine of the empire spins. He was obviously familiar with Vashti's fate, had direct impact on him, directly. Yet he continued to transgress the king's command. He seems awfully like a risk taker. Now what we see as the story progresses, the servants finally told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Now here's another very subtle detail that we're shown. Now there's very important detail because in chapter 2 verse 10 Mordecai had commanded Esther to keep her Jewish identity hidden. No one was to know her ethnic background or her religious convictions. Her identity was on a need-to-know basis, and no one in the king's court needed to know. And up to this point, Esther's identity still remained under wraps. Mordecai's counsel to Esther may have been a calculated maneuver to bolster her chances of success in the harem to then finally lead to the throne room. But in this scene, 
Mordecai told the king's servants that he was a Jew. So as you read this, do you feel a sense of tension just bubbling in the passage? Having saved the king's life, Mordecai was the picture of the ideal subject in Xerxes' empire. So why would Mordecai transgress against the king's command to give Haman honor? Some have said that Mordecai's refusal was religiously motivated, saying that if he had indeed bowed to Haman, he would then, in effect, be giving worship to Haman. Others have said that it's possible that Mordecai would not bow down to Haman because Haman wore pagan symbols of idols on his clothing. But what's interesting is that other sources have confirmed that Jews in the Persian court normally bowed to pagan officials as an act of court protocol. Similar to when uh, our British neighbors would bow or curtsy before the late queen. It was an act of protocol. So why would Mordecai refuse to bow when others followed suit? The devil's in the details, if you will. Look at how Mordecai, uh, both Mordecai and Haman are introduced. So, on the one hand, according to chapter 2, verse 5, Mordecai was the son of Jer, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Yeah, real subtle detail, but really important. Because on the other hand, according to chapter 3, verse 1, Haman was an Agagite. He was an Agagite. That might not mean much to modern 21st century Americans, but when the original readers of this story would read this, these subtle details would be really telling. All kinds of flags would start to raise when they would see details of these names and these characters. Now, in a couple of months, if you're reading the, uh, a Bible reading plan through the year, in a couple of months, you're going to be reading some really important uh, Old Testament history. I'm going to give you a little bit of a sample of what you're going to be reading. Now, during the reign of King Saul who was Israel's first king, Agag was the king of the Amalekites. You can read more about the tension between the Israelites and the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 15. The Amalekites were a nomadic people named after Amalek. Again, the name might not mean much to us, but when we peel through the layers of details in the scriptures, we see that Amalek was the son of Esau. And we're told... That Mordecai was the son of Kish. So who was Kish? Kish was Saul's father. And Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, just like Mordecai. So these little details that the author is placing suddenly starts to paint a picture. These details are all very important. Now, a little bit more history for you. After the Lord providentially delivered the people of Israel from their bondage in Egypt... You'll see in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, the Amalekites attacked the people of Israel in the wilderness. And in an epic battle, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people, and the Lord himself promised, in verse 14, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Again, these little details start to paint a clearer picture. And in Exodus chapter 17, verse 16, the uh, passage goes on to say that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 2, we see this promise in Exodus 17 playing out in greater detail. The Lord had commanded uh, King Saul through the prophet Samuel to strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. This is all to say, wipe out all of the Amalekites, everything. There is not to be a trace of them left. Now, Saul, he indeed attacked the Amalekites, but he did not fully obey the Lord's command. So whereas the Lord had commanded Saul to completely destroy all of the Amalekites, the people and their goods, Contrary to the Lord's command, Saul spared the life of their king, Agag, along with the best of the sheep and cattle. So why would he do this? 
Right? He, Saul was asked why he did this, and he claimed that the sheep and the cattle were spared so that a sacrifice could be made to the God of Samuel. But you read that story, and suddenly his excuse seems really hard to believe. Not to mention, for what purpose, then, did Saul spare Agag? Doesn't, it just, the, the pieces just don't add up. The things just don't make sense with Saul's excuse. So then in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 32 to 33... Samuel finished the job that was given to Saul. And the text says, and Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. Not exactly a pretty picture. Not exactly something that gives you the warm fuzzies when you uh, read the scriptures. But all of these events that transpire are very important. Over the centuries after Saul spared Agag's life, various enemies of Israel were called Agagites. So by referring to Haman as the Agagite, the author is very subtly identifying him as an enemy of the Jewish people. Here is the villain of our story. You need no respirator mask or sound effects to find out that this dude is a bad dude. The villain of our story is Haman, the Agagite. Mordecai's refusal to bow down to Haman does not seem to be an issue of violating basic court protocol, nor does it seem to be out of just pettiness or jealousy. His refusal to bow down to Haman, it subtly highlights the age-old conflict between the people of Israel and the powers that sought to destroy them. According to verses 5 and 6, not only was Haman furious with Mordecai, his pride-driven wrath turned against all the Jews in the empire. We're told he was filled with fury. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. There, when you carefully read through the story of Esther, there uh, is uh, humor, there is irony, there is also absurdity. You are not to look at Mordecai's actions and think, this is a reasonable sound man of sound thinking. Mordecai is crazy. His anger against one man turns to, to hatred against all. And not just hatred that just bubbles inside. Not just a sense of anger internally. No. He sought to destroy all the Jews. Think of it in the sense of your child disobeys you time after time after time, and you are so filled with fear you want to kill all children. It's absurd, absolutely absurd. And notice the contrast that the author shows between Xerxes and Haman. All throughout the story of Esther, if you carefully read the story, you're going to see striking contrasts. Whereas Xerxes became enraged and his anger burned, against, uh, burned within him against Vashti for her defiance, Haman was filled with fury because Mordecai would not bow down to him or pay homage to him. You notice the two? And you, you'll also notice that both instances of defiance, it is what it is. It, we can't name it anything else. Both instances of defiance had empire-spanning effects. Vashti's defiance had an effect on all the women in the empire. And Mordecai's defiance had an effect on all the Jews in the empire. Even those Jews who returned to Jerusalem far from Susa, who were completely unaware of Mordecai's actions. There's no Twitter feed for the Jews in Jerusalem to see what someone has said uh, way far away in the city of Susa. But the story goes on. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, 
Let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Sense of tension just escalates here. Now, now we don't just see a conflict between one man against another. Now we see the king getting involved. The casting of poor or lots, there were kind of like dice. There were these cube-shaped uh, 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 instruments that the Persians would use to basically consult the fates. And and the casting of the poor would determine when Haman's evil plan would take place. Now, if you're somebody that likes to highlight the scriptures in your Bible, or you like to underline things or just circle things, you might want to underline or circle the word poor. Because that word is going to come back later on in the story. Now, before Haman's evil plot can be acted upon, Haman needed to consult the fates. So not only does he need the physical logistics to be laid out perfectly spiritually, he needs it all to be laid out. He needs the stars to be aligned. But Haman didn't have the authority to enact his plan on his own. In order for that to happen, he would need the king's approval. And to get the king's approval, he would first need to rouse the king's attention. So what does Haman do? He brought before the king a carefully crafted accusation. Notice Haman's deliberate vagueness in this accusation. He says, there is a certain people. He didn't specifically identify the people as the Jews. And then notice also Haman's skillful manipulation. He says, their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. Haman's crafty. He's really shrewd. And he knows what's going to set the king off. Remember, he says, and they do not keep the king's laws. If we've seen anything or understand anything about Xerxes, you remember how furious he was the last time we saw a command of his be disobeyed? He threw a queen away. He was furious. Haman has to know this. Notice also, Haman's not completely truthful. Nothing in the story here indicates that the Jewish exiles were rebellious against the king's rule. And even if the Jewish people had their own laws and their customs, that was inconsequential to this because it wasn't the Jewish people who offended Haman and disobeyed the king. It was only one Jewish man, Mordecai. Haman is the picture of the kind of man Christians ought not to be like. We are not to be unclear in our speech in order to deceive others, to lie to them, to manipulate them so that we can twist their picture and their understanding so that they will believe us and we will be strengthened and empowered. Do you know what that is? That's using people. That is not serving people. The words of our mouth are to bless those and serve them. Haman does the opposite. He uses and employs the words of his mouth as a tool to get whatever it is that his lust is craving. And at this point in the story, his lust is craving vindication. But we are to, as the people of God, we are to put away the need for vindication. We are to put away slander. We are to put away deceit and anger and wrath and slander and things like these. In short, we are not to look like Haman. Now, like any good sales pitch, Haman needed to close the deal. So he says in verse 9, If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Again, more subtle details are pulling up here. What we ought to understand, if it's not obvious by now, The author means to show us 
that Haman is an evil, twisted, manipulative sycophant. Haman had to know that Xerxes' war against Greece was an abysmal disaster, which depleted the Persian treasury. So what does he do? He shrewdly offered to pay a substantial sum of money to destroy the Jews. 10,000 talents of silver. That's 300 tons. Imagine a mountain of silver sitting before you. It's an overwhelming amount of money. Now, there's a, there's a t- small little hint here that I, I wonder if anyone has caught. 10,000 talents of silver. The lives of the Jews were threatened with the enemy promising to pay 10,000 talents of silver. Does that sound familiar at all to you? Where else in the scriptures do we see the life of a Jewish man threatened and a payment made of silver? Matthew 26, verses 14 to 16. Matthew records, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. When you open up the scriptures and you peel through the layers of details and and, uh, information and context and all these things, what you see is a thorough thread, a through line from the beginning of the scriptures to the end. What you see are little pictures Little, uh, little details, little sniffs that point us to the one who would fulfill the law of God, Jesus. All of the pages of the scriptures whisper of the coming of Jesus. Luke 24, Jesus says, all of the scriptures point to me. Now, this is not a direct contrast or a direct uh, uh, line to uh, uh, Jesus Christ, but it is a very unique detail that we find in the scriptures here. Now, back to uh, Esther chapter 3. This is really interesting. Like Memucan before him, and the king's attendants before him, Haman advised the king what would seemingly be in the king's best interests. It is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Do you notice something interesting about the king in this passage? He is too apathetic to even bother asking who the people are Haman is accusing. He doesn't even wonder or ask, who are these people who are disobeying me? So the the proposed solution to this question of the problem was to wipe out an entire section of the people of the kingdom. It's strange that the king doesn't even bat an eyelash at that. He doesn't seem to be uh, uh, questioning it. He doesn't seem to uh, be bothered by it. He doesn't even seem to be curious that an entire section of his kingdom would be slaughtered. Rather, he's approving. With the king's approval, Haman had everything he needed to annihilate his enemies. So our introduction to Haman began with Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, But now we see him for what he truly is. Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But before we move on, there's another important detail. Look back at verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor. The fateful month of Nisan was when the poor just happened to be cast. Nisan just happened to be the very month when the Jews would celebrate the Passover. The Passover. If you have read through the Old Testament, then you know that the Passover was the most grand act of God's deliverance of his people in the Old Testament. 
any other year, Jewish families would be gathering during the Passover to celebrate the feast, and they would remember God's mighty works in saving His people. They would commemorate how God had miraculously delivered the people of Israel from their bondage in Egypt. On that first Passover, the Lord showed Himself to be both just and merciful at the same time. On that first Passover, salvation was provided through substitution. A lamb was sacrificed and its blood was put on the doorpost of those in need of salvation. The angel of death would then pass over all those covered by the lamb's blood. Does this sound familiar at all to you? The Passover was meant to look back on the Lord's mighty acts of salvation to deliver his people. But on this Passover, no longer in Egypt, but in Persia, the Jews would receive the news that their annihilation was coming. Where would their salvation come from this time? Where is God now to deliver them? This is a dark scene. The setting is difficult. It is tense. It sucks the air out of the room. But the passage continues, verses 12 uh, and onward. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, which just happened to be the eve of the Passover when the families would be preparing to celebrate the feast. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So the poor was cast on Nisan, but Haman's plot would have to wait all the way uh, up to a year before this act could actually take place. Verse 14. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So as the Jews would prepare for the feast of the Passover to reflect upon the faithfulness of Yahweh, they would discover that the entire imperial machine has set its intentions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all of them. Not a single one was to be spared. So where would help come from now? In chapter 3... This ends with a chilling scene. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. They sat down to drink in pleasure, in splendor, in comfort, but the entire city losing their minds. What is happening? That's our first scene in Esther chapter 3, Haman's plot. Let's turn our attention to our second scene in Esther chapter 4, Esther's resolve. We've not heard from Esther in some time, but in Esther chapter 4 we read this. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai seems to have this habit of throwing protocol out the window. No one was to approach the king's gate in sackcloth, yet that's exactly what he does. All were to bow down and pay homage and give honor to Haman, but Mordecai refused to do so. 
But what we see in this passage is not simply just an act of uh, being overdramatic by Mordecai tearing his clothes and putting on sackcloth and rubbing ash all over him. What he's doing is displaying an unbearable grief, an unbearable distress. We are meant to see that this was not an easy burden that Mordecai bore. In verse 4, we read, When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Now, this, this is a really interesting scene here. So, if you noticed, there's something fascinating about Esther in this passage. Years have passed, and the beautiful Esther is serving as the royal queen, but this passage tells us something striking about Esther apart from her beauty. We know that the city of Susa was thrown into confusion because of this evil edict. And we also know that in every province, wherever the king's commands and his decree had reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. But what do we see with Esther? Look at how isolated Esther had become from her Jewish community. Everyone in the empire knew that the Jews were in great distress, but even in the king's palace, Esther had no clue. She had no clue what was going on. Like all those in exile, Esther had to live in two worlds. And at this point in the story, it would look like that the Persian world had completely consumed her. Is there any Jewishness left in Esther? She is so far gone and far isolated from the Jewish people. But when Mordecai's news reached Esther, the queen was deeply distressed. What could she do? Well, she could clothe Mordecai. That much was something that she could do. But notice something about Mordecai. Unlike in chapter 2, where he just happens to come upon some knowledge that he can take action on, in this chapter, with the knowledge he has from the king's edict, Mordecai was powerless to do anything to save a single life, let alone his own. Mordecai hoped that the facts of the impending tragedy of their people would convince Esther to plead with the king and to beg his favor to save their people. Now, think back to chapter 2 again. Mordecai commanded Esther, you do not uh, want to let anybody know that you are Jewish. But notice in uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 8. After Mordecai gave the copy of the written decree so that the eunuch could then show it to Esther, he had hoped that uh, he could explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. It seems like the command to hide her identity is now being put away. Show yourself to be one of us. Now, the passage gets uh, spicier. Notice Esther's response in verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter 
so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Esther is told the news that her people are going to face utter destruction. There will not be a single Jewish member of her community left if she does not plead with the king for his favor to revoke the law that cannot be revoked. But notice Esther's response. No one could come before the king, uh, king's presence unless the king first summoned them. Now, surely Mordecai knew this, but in this crisis of genocide, again, he threw protocol out the window. But Esther cautiously reminded him that even if she, as the queen, broke the king's protocol, she would be put to death herself. All throughout the story of Esther, you will find, again, striking contrasts between the kingdom of Xerxes and the kingdom of God. Do you see here in Esther's situation what a dreadful and fearful position she was in? She feared for her own life if she came into the presence of the king, not only the king, but her husband, whom he loved more than all the other women that he possessed. If she came before him without first being summoned, her life would end. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, such is not the case for you. Your heavenly king, dear Christian, is not like Esther's king. If you are in Christ, you have no reason to fear death when you seek to approach your great heavenly king. Because Jesus has brought you near to God. You have no reason to shrink back in fear. You have no reason to keep a safe distance from the Lord when he has sent his own son for you. Consider that in the coming of Jesus, the Lord God himself did not keep a safe distance from us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. If you memorize a verse of Scripture this year, my hope is that we will memorize many passages. Maybe you memorize 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 this afternoon. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. There is no reason to fear our heavenly King. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Friends, Esther feared that she would die if she came before the presence of the king. And what more do we have to fear when the Lord God has given to us Jesus Christ so that we might live through him? In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Dear brother and sister, you have no reason to shrink back in fear when the Lord God has invited you to himself. The prerequisite for your privilege to come into the presence of the Lord required the death of the Lord's beloved, but not your death. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. Unlike Mordecai, you do not have to wonder if you will find a suitable advocate before your great heavenly king. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then you already have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And with this advocate, you have no reason to suspect or fear that this advocate will fail you. Now, let's turn our attention back to Mordecai. In his unfathomably deep distress, what did Mordecai do? He immediately sought intervention from the king. Now, arguments often should not be made out of the case of absence. And Mordecai may have sought God's help through prayer. And maybe the author just decided not to include that little detail. But what's interesting is, there is no mention of prayer in the entire story of, uh, of Esther. There's not a single mention of prayer. There's no mention of the Lord's name, and there's no mention of prayer. Now friends, in the midst of your deep distress, 
when you are overwhelmed by your trials and difficulties, when you become anxious and are crippled by fear and worry, to whom do you cry out for intervention? Who do you cry out to for help? There may be brothers and sisters in the church that you can call when you're feeling anxious and worried. Uh, There may be outside help that you can receive. The Apostle Peter, he encouraged the church. He said in 1 Peter chapter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. If you've got a pen, you might want to underline this. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Christian, your heavenly king, though you may not understand why his hand is permitting you to go through whatever challenge or difficulty you're going through, he cares for you. He invites you to cast all your anxieties on him, not to earn his care, but because he cares. He cares for you. You are not a disposable commodity that he will use and then throw away when he no longer has a need for you. When you belong to the Lord in Jesus Christ, he does not see you as a nuisance. He does not see you as useless. He does not see you as worthless. He does not see you as some, someone or something that he just merely has to tolerate. He actually loves you. Again, 1 John chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Do you believe that? Do you doubt that? Do you question that? Do you wonder? John goes on. And so we are, period. Even when his hand seems invisible and you cannot understand the why, you can rest in God because he cares for you. Now, back back to chapter 4, verse 12, we read, And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Friends, this little passage here... um, Many books have been published on the story of Esther. Oftentimes, it, it, the story is read in like the, the sense of like a romance novel. Uh, not exactly what I would recommend for you to read. And this little, little verse is oftentimes posted all over Instagram for such a time as this. But when we look carefully at what this passage is saying, Mordecai seems to be saying to Esther, Look, you might think that your life may be in jeopardy if you go before the king without an invitation, but your doom is certain if you do not go. Your doom is certain. He appeared confident that even if Esther kept silent, relief and deliverance would rise for the Jews from another place. He doesn't say where it would come from. He doesn't say who would come in Esther's place. He doesn't even mention God. But the way the Hebrew is constructed, Mordecai seems to be alluding that God's sovereign, invisible hand would deliver their people even if Esther fails to act. But this passage is not Instagrammable. Reading this language... The language is unsettling. Mordecai, could it be the case that Mordecai is making a veiled threat against Esther? Is he invoking divine judgment on her for what appears to be apathy towards her own people? Notice, the news is received by Esther that her whole people will be annihilated. And her first thought is, well, if I go before the king, I'm going to die. But in this passage... Is Mordecai simply stating a fact? Her doom is certain if she does not go, even if she believes that her life may be in jeopardy. But when we carefully read the passage, as one commentator said, the author leaves the reader with tantalizing ambiguity. We can't come to any just simple answers to these questions. 
But with this looming crisis, the time has now come for Esther to finally decide which of these two worlds she will choose to define her. Will she choose to identify herself as a member of the covenant people of God, or would she continue to live in the splendor and comforts of the king's palace? Would she choose to save her people, thereby unveiling her true ethnic identity and identify herself as a target of destruction that her own husband has approved? Or would she hide behind the crown? As another commentator said, if Esther decides to remain silent and to continue to live as a pagan, God will use some other means to fulfill his covenant promises. Deliverance will arise from another place. Yet God has placed Esther in that era of history, in that city of Persia, and even in that bedroom of Xerxes, so that when the moment comes, he can fulfill the ancient promise through her. Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not drink or do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther's made her decision. There will be no turning back. Whereas in chapter 2, Mordecai commanded her to hide her identity, now it is Esther giving the command, go gather all the Jews and hold a fast. Just as all the Jews in Susa would seek the Lord for deliverance through fasting, so would she. She would throw her life before the mercy of a ruthless pagan king. And if I perish, I perish. Friends, in the Hebrew... Esther's phrase is not constructed as if death is one possible outcome. It is the only inevitable outcome. Esther is settled in her mind and her conviction. If I die, I die. But I will stand for my people. Chapter 4 ends with tantalizing tension. Verse 17. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Whereas chapter 3 began with the introduction of Haman as the enemy of the Jews, chapter 4 ends with Esther's transformation into the advocate of the Jews. Whereas Esther was introduced simply as a passive trophy wife, we now see her as one who is willing to risk her own life, even her crown, to save her people. Now, when we read a story like Esther, we might be tempted to turn the focus on ourselves. There's an easy temptation to read ourselves into the story of Scripture. Well, we, our, we are David, and our troubles before us are Goliath. We are Esther, courageous and faithful. We will stand for the Lord and his people. We might be tempted to ask questions when we read a story like Esther. Like, how can I become a more courageous woman like Esther? How can I have the faith, the kind of faith, that Esther had to risk everything, even her own life, to save her people? Those are decent questions to ask, but they are not the best questions to ask. Rather than giving you a list of action steps you can take based on Esther's uh, courageous boldness... There's a person in this story that we are to think about more than ourselves as we read this. The story may be named after Esther, but it is not exclusively about her. The story may involve the Jewish people, but the story is not ultimately about them. Who is this story really about? This story is about God. There are two questions that you should ponder as you read the story. The first question, what do God's people do when he seems nowhere to be found? What do God's people do when he seems nowhere to be found? What do we do when we cannot understand what God is doing or why he's allowing certain circumstances to happen in our lives? 
How do we honor God when we question why he has dealt us the hand that he has dealt? Brothers and sisters, we honor God when we choose to trust him. In the midst of your great difficulties, dear church, God has not left you. He has promised he will never leave you. He has promised he will never forsake you. When all others have abandoned you, the Lord has promised to take you in. And our great God is not in the business of breaking his promises. He will fulfill all of his purposes for his people, and he will keep all of his promises to his people. When Joseph faced his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, who had done great evil against him, it was by trusting in the Lord that Joseph could say to them, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. We may not be able to see the end of things from the beginning, but God does. And when all is said and done, God uses even the injustices of wicked men to fulfill all of his promises to his people. I was reminded by one brother this week that the obstacles and trials in our lives are not just random things that just happen to be getting in the way of what God wants to do in our lives. The trials that we face in our lives are not things that just get in God's way of accomplishing his purposes. Friends, they are the very things God will use to conform us into the image of his son. That's why Paul could say, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Because God's grace is sufficient for us and his power is made perfect in our weakness, that's why the Apostle Paul could say, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you feel weak today? Well, friend, your weakness is all you need to rest in the strength of God. Do you feel weary and burdened? Your great heavenly King Jesus invites you into his own presence, and he promises that he will not respond by ending your life. He promises to give your life rest. Do you wonder where God is in the midst of your difficulties and trials? He is with you, and he is still at work. Even when we cannot see, he is there. Everything, everything, everything is under his control, even when we cannot understand how. And that's the main idea of this story. Even in your darkest circumstances, when the Lord seems nowhere to be found, he is with you. Why can we trust God, even in the most difficult of circumstances? Because he is good, and all that he does for his people is good. He will fulfill all of his promises to his people. And you may be walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but has the good Lord not gone before you? Has he not trodden the path before you that you find yourself on now? Even in the valley, he will never leave you. He will lead you through even when you cannot see in the blanketing darkness. He is not done with us. He is not done with you. Christian, the Lord may not be working as fast as you would like, and he may not be working in the ways that you had hoped, but the Lord God is at work in your life right now. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Paul doesn't say that we know how all things work together. Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. As Jerry Bridges once said, uh, it, you, you may want to read uh, Trusting God at some point uh, this year. If that's the only book you read this year, I, I would highly recommend uh, Jerry Bridges' Trusting God. But as Bridges said in his book, if we are to trust God, we must learn to see that he is continuously at work in every aspect and every moment of our lives. No matter how weak your faith is at the moment, 
you can trust that God is at work in your life. Your grip on him may be weak, but his grip on you is strong. And there is nothing, nothing, nothing that will separate you from the everlasting and powerful love of God. Will you believe that today? There's one more question to consider, though. If Esther would intercede for the Jews in Persia, who will intercede for us? If we're not asking this question when we read this passage, I think we're probably asking the wrong question. Who will intercede for us? As one theologian said, if it is true that a mediator was needed to intercede with King Ahasuerus, how much more do we need a mediator to intercede for us with God, the great king? The Lord is utterly different from Ahasuerus in nearly every respect, for he is a wise, kind, just, and faithful ruler. Nonetheless, he is the great king of kings, the sovereign ruler of the universe against whom we all have rebelled. Fallen, sinful people cannot therefore simply saunter into his presence unannounced and uninvited. On the contrary, his edict has gone forth against us, declaring us worthy of death because of our sin. The truth has been disseminated throughout his empire that the soul who sins shall die. His decree is settled and determined all the more so because it was not formulated in ignorance and haste, but by perfect wisdom before the foundation of the world. Who will argue our case? Who will come to bring relief and deliverance for us? Here's Ian Dewey again. The answer is Jesus Christ. The true mediator between God and man. In the fullness of time, he took flesh and appeared in this world. Far from being comfortably isolated from his community as Esther was, Jesus identified with us fully. He took on the form of a servant and lived as one of us in this fallen and sin-sick world. Then after he had completed his life of perfect obedience, he went in before the Father knowing that he was not just risking his life but laying it down for him if I perish, I perish, meant not just the potential probability of death, but the absolute certainty of it on the cross. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But there was no other way in which our sin could be judged and we could be saved. So he drank the cup of God's wrath down to its last drops for you and me. Through his death, we have received life. Raised from the dead, Jesus Christ once again appears before the Father where he continues to intercede for us. Now, though, he is no longer alone, but accompanied around the throne by a host of glorified saints. These are his people whom he has brought safely through all the trials of this hostile world. Some bear the marks of torture for Christ, others the inner scars of countless spiritual struggles. But all are now triumphant in him redeemed by his blood. Nor is this Jesus suffering any longer. His time of deprivation and abstinence is over. Now in heaven, Jesus is already beginning the glorious feast prepared for all those written in the Lamb's book of life. A day is coming when we will no longer fast. When Jesus comes back, there will be no more fasting, as well as no more tears, no more crying, and no more pain. There will be feasting forever in the presence of the king for all of the king's redeemed people. And then at last, we shall share in his glory and taste the fullness of his goodness. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and humbled, thankful and rejoicing in your deliverance of us. When we were your enemies, Lord, you died for us. When we were uh, brutish against you, you softened our hearts and you now call us friends in Christ. God, we yearn for the day when final deliverance will come 
when we will be delivered from this sinful world of death and sickness and rebellion and treachery and evil and wickedness, when we will be delivered and we will be triumphantly in your presence. But God, that day has not come yet. And so, Lord, we look to you in whom all of our deliverance will come and in whom all of our hope rests. And so, God, as we wait, would you now help us to look to you, Lord Jesus, to trust that you are sovereignly reigning and ruling all things for the good of your people whom you have laid your life down for and that you will indeed come again and you will restore all things that you will make all things new, that there will be no more sin or crying or death or tears or pain anymore, but there will only be peace with our great King in heaven. Father, we long for that day, and we yearn for your Son to return. And as we wait, we will trust you. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.